together, let not man put asunder, as the King James renders it, or let not man separate, as the New King James renders that very poignant and pertinent passage in its immediate context applying to the marriage relationship. But in a brief series, as you well know, if you've been with us for this series, we are expanding that phrase, what God has joined together, to other areas that are absolutely crucial for our understanding and for us to be pleasing to God in this life. We've seen that God has joined himself to this world, and we looked at evidences of the fact that God and this world are joined. While the atheist seeks to separate God from his creation, the agnostic doubts whether there is a relationship, the creation cries in response, God is. We also have seen that if it is the case, and it is that God has joined himself to this world, would it not follow logically that he would join himself to his word, that he would reveal, in other words, his will for us and his ultimate goodness to us, some of which, of course, is seen in creation itself. Acts fourteen seventeen reminds us, nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. But the goodness of God can only be fully seen and appreciated in his revelation of his will to man. And so God has joined himself not only to his world, but to his word. And yes, there are those who claim that God has not joined himself to Jesus, but we have already seen that they are inseparable. I and my Father are one, Jesus very succinctly affirmed in John 10 and verse 30. And time and time again as he lived and worked among men and ultimately died for the salvation of all mankind, we see that God and Christ are one in their nature, one in purpose indeed. God has joined himself to Jesus. But we've also seen that God has joined Jesus to salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ and that there can be no salvation without the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the shed blood of Christ. We have learned how we meet those conditions that have been set forth by the one who died on Calvary in order to be saved from sin. Remember, we used a seatbelt to simply illustrate the fact that salvation is through God's grace, coupled with our obedient faith. And we also saw that when we obey the teachings of Jesus from the heart, we are saved from our sins, and yes, added to the church which Jesus purchased with his blood. This morning, in this lesson, we will describe that church. That church in detail, the body of Christ, as it is called, over which Christ is now Head and over which he will remain head until he comes again, and as 1 Corinthians 15, 24 points out, until he then puts down all rule, all authority, all power, and delivers the kingdom, which is the church, they're one and the same, to the Father in heaven. You see, many in the religious world, as you well know, do not see that God has joined salvation to the church through Jesus Christ. Give me Jesus, yes, but not the church. Give me the man, but not the plan. Or give me, give me the cross, but not the church. But you cannot be saved through the cross without the involvement of the church. And even those who will admit the benefit of a church, as they might view it, they see or contend that one church is as good as another, or many say no church is necessary at all in order to be pleasing. To God. 
And so this morning, as we draw near the conclusion of, of this series, with which we'll conclude tonight, the Lord willing, as we look at a kind of a reverse view, not what God has joined, but tonight we're going to see what God has separated. Because there are some things that God has separated. But from the scriptures this morning, let us see that God has joined himself, his son, and salvation through his son to the church we read about in the New Testament. In the first place, the church is important. There is no dismissing the importance of the church. How can something be unimportant for which Christ himself died? Acts 20 and verse 28. To those Ephesian elders, Paul said, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And that church is the kingdom, as we have often pointed out. And as we revisit the passage that makes that abundantly clear, Matthew 16, 18, and 19, remember that Jesus said, Upon this rock, that is the confession, the great truth that Peter had just made, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, and I will give to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Church and kingdom of heaven, used interchangeably, used synonymously. We know what a synonym is, obviously. We use them all the time. Jesus used a synonym. The church and the kingdom. The kingdom is the church. The, the church is the kingdom. Jesus shed his blood to purchase the church, to purchase the kingdom. Therefore, it is important. Beyond that, the church is also immediate. And that's important to understand because it is in existence now, in other words. It has been established as Christ predicted it. It is not some future institution. There is no distinction between the church and the kingdom, the kingdom being some future institution, the church being the here and now, as the premillennialists contend. No, the church, the kingdom, is immediate. It's in existence now. There is no future institution that is coming down the road somewhere. The Lord is coming again, but as we've already pointed out from 1 Corinthians 15, 24, when He comes again, He's going to deliver up the immediate, now existing, in other words, kingdom, the church, to God the Father. And it will enter its eternal phase. It will not become a different institution. It will be the same institution, the same kingdom that has simply left earth and has entered its eternal phase. Acts 1 and verse 8. Jesus told, told the apostles, you'll receive power when the kingdom or when the uh, Holy Spirit comes upon you. And we see the fulfillment of that in Acts 2, 1 through 4. Jesus and John the Baptist both preached that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, Matthew 3, 1 and 2. Mark 9, 1, Jesus said, some of you standing here will not taste of death. You will not die until you've seen the kingdom of God present, as the New King James says, with power. Power will come when the Holy Spirit comes. Holy Spirit came on Pentecost, therefore the kingdom came on Pentecost. It is undeniable. The church is here. It is an immediate institution over which Christ reigns as head. Beyond that, the church is also indestructible. It will never be destroyed. Christ built it to last forever. Going back to Matthew 16, 18, upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. In other words, I'm going into the Hadean realm at my death. My spirit will leave my body. I'll go into the Hadean realm, specifically into paradise. But those gates of Hades, as it were, as he used that figurative expression, they will not hold my spirit. My spirit's going to come back out of the Hadean realm, 
rejoin my body, I'm going to be raised, and I'm going to establish my church. It is a kingdom, as the Hebrews writer reminds us in Hebrews 12, 28, which we have inherited as Christians, which will never be destroyed. And the seed of that kingdom is the word of God. Jesus reminds us in Luke's account of the parable of the sower. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Wherever this seed, the word of God, is planted in good and honest hearts and brings forth fruit, the kingdom springs into existence. But wherever it hasn't sprung into existence, it still exists in seed form, doesn't it, as long as this word exists. And when will this word go away? Never. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said, but my words will by no means pass away, Matthew 24, 35. And so the church is important, obviously. It is immediate. It is indestructible. And here's a vitally important point that I wish all mankind understood and appreciated. That is, those who even claim to believe in God and Christ, and that is that the church is indivisible. Indivisible. It is incapable of being divided it is not a plurality of institutions. Christ built only one. And we quickly add as we make that assertion, and it is a scriptural assertion, that we're not talking about Christ building only one denomination. Christ knew nothing of denominationalism as he built his church. Denominationalism didn't exist when the church sprang into existence on that Pentecost day long ago. I will build my church, singular, possessive, my church. And that church came into existence on Pentecost, and the Ephesian letter is a beautiful and inspired reminder of so many aspects of that church, especially the indivisibility of it. He put all things, for example, under his feet. He, God, put all things under his, Christ's feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. Listen to it. The church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. The church, which is his what? His body. Ephesians 4, 4, there is one body. If the church is his body and there's one body, there's one church. A pre-denominational institution, not a denominational institution. He is the savior of that one body, that one church. Ephesians 5 and verse 23. The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Clearly established is the fact that the church is the body, the body is the church. There is one body, one church, and Christ is the Savior of it. Therefore, in order to be saved when the Lord comes again, 1 Corinthians 15, 24, to deliver that body or kingdom to God, I must be in it. I must be a part of it. Oh, I know that that's a foreign concept, unthinkable to so many in the religious world who have become so accustomed to the divided nature of so-called Christianity today. And as I said, we do not contend for one denomination versus another. We do not contend for denominationalism. We contend for one to go back before denominationalism and strike hands across the precious word of God and be a part of the pre-denominational body, which is identified, and that's another point to which we'll come in just a moment, which is clearly identified in this word. And if we do those things that identify the church and do those things necessary to become a part of that identifiable church, then indeed we are.
pleasing God in the one body for which Christ shed his blood and over which he now reigns as head. What did Jesus pray for in John 17, 20, and 21? We've talked about it many times. In that fervent prayer to the Father prior, not long before his betrayal and ultimate crucifixion, he prayed as he had been praying for the apostles. He then turned his attention in verse 20 to believers for all time to come. And listen to it. He said, neither do I pray for these, the apostles alone, but for all those who will believe on them through thy word. Through your word. Pray what? That they all may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Christ prayed for unity for all believers for all time to come. Who would possibly contend today that in so-called Christendom we have that kind of unity? It is non-existent. And the proliferation of denominations just continues. It just continues. Whereas the number was once hundreds, it's now thousands. All differing. All differing. Is that an answer to the prayer of Jesus in John 17, 20, and 21? It cannot be. It is not. What will answer that prayer? For good and honest people to lay aside their creeds and to lay aside their traditions of men and to unite upon the church that is not only indivisible, not only indestructible, immediate, and important, but which is also identifiable. Doesn't it make sense that if Christ built his church, shed his blood to establish it, that he would identify it for us in Scripture so that we can know how to become a part of it? If indeed he's going to save those who are in the body over which he now reigns his head, does it follow logically that he would identify that body so that we know how to become a part of it? How to be in it? He would be a cruel, cruel God. And Christ would be a cruel Savior beyond description who would tell us, the saved are in my church, but the best to you in trying to find how to be a part of it. I'm going to make it so confusing and unclear that you'll never be able to fully know that you've done those things to become a part of the body of Christ, the church for which he shed his blood. Why, of course he will identify it. And of course he did. And in the last few minutes of our lesson together, let's look at the identifying marks or the characteristics of the church for which Christ shed his blood. Christ is the head of it, as we've already seen, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And he, God, put all things under his, Christ's feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What do we call this church over which Christ is head? Well, we have scriptural options. It is simply called the church. It is referred to as the church of God, not a denomination by that name, but the church that God instituted, originated in authoring the plan that ultimately would bring his son to this earth to die and be buried and rise again to become head of it. But it is logically and obviously called the church of Christ. 
That's a scriptural, scriptural designation because Christ is the head of it. It belongs to Christ. But even if I reasoned accordingly and could not find scriptural proof for calling it that, I wouldn't have scriptural proof. But I do. Romans 16, 16. Paul said, the churches of Christ salute you, meaning the congregations of Christ, the churches of Christ, the various congregations in different locations. They are the churches of Christ. The universal body of believers is the church of Christ, universal. Paul was using the term church of Christ in the congregational sense there, as it is used, obviously, in Scripture. And what about its mission? Do I find an identifiable mission for the church in the New Testament? Of course I do. Mark 16, 15, and 16, in Mark's account of the Great Commission, as it is called, Jesus told them to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. That's the mission of the church, obviously. As a part of its mission, it is to preach the gospel. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, Paul writes to Timothy and tells him, But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Listen to it. The pillar and ground of the truth. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. We've got to get the truth out there. We've got to preach the gospel. We've got to be determined to preach the gospel to the whole world in this generation. With determination, we can do it. But we're also to edify each other, those who are, are part of this identifiable church. We're to build each other up, encourage one another, stir one another up to love and good works, Hebrews 10.24. Ephesians 4.16 is a passage from that beautiful Ephesian letter again that reminds us of how important it is to build each other up. You know, we live in a tough world. A tough world. And if we're going to be successful in living in that world, day in and day out, we're going to have to help each other. And the Lord obviously knew that. And so Paul, by inspiration in Ephesians 4, at verse 16, after talking about speaking the truth in love, in verse 15 says from whom the whole body, speaking of the head, Christ in verse 15, from the, whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying, building up, for the edifying of itself in love. What a beautiful expression. Building one another up in love. Loving more and more. Every day. And of course, benevolence. Helping others with their physical needs. Galatians 6 and verse 10, Paul reminds us that as we have opportunity, let us work that which is good toward all men, especially toward those who are of the household of the faith. And James describes pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father as this. What is it, James? Visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and keep oneself unspotted from the world. James 1.27. And so there's our mission Preach the gospel, edify each other, and engage in benevolence. What about the organization of the church? Well, the ideal organization of the church, obviously, is for a plurality of elders to oversee each congregation. Each congregation is autonomous. 
The ideal organization of the church, according to God's plan, is for deacons to serve as special servants under the authority of those elders, for the members to function together under the authority of those elders, including the preacher who works under the authority of those elders, and, as we said, each congregation to be independent. That's why we have the qualifications of elders set forth in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, the qualifications of deacons in 1 Timothy 3 at verse 8, beginning... And the entire organization of the church is summarized, as we've talked about before, beautifully for us as Paul begins his letter to the Philippian church. Listen to it. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints, that's the Christians, in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops, another term for elders, and deacons. There's the fully scripturally organized church. Members of the body of Christ, the saints, the bishops, the elders, and the deacons. And when we do not, as we do not at this point in time have elders, then we must do what we can within scriptural parameters to carry on the work of the church until such time as elders can be reappointed. And as Ron has pointed out already, we're doing our best to do that in a way that will not violate the will of God, but at the same time, pray fervently and work diligently toward the reestablishment of an eldership. What are the terms of admission? The terms of admission into this beautiful, beautiful body that is so indispensable, really, not just important, but indispensable, and into this identifiable church about which we've been speaking this morning, it has to begin with belief, doesn't it? John eight twenty four. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins, Jesus said. But Jesus also said, as we have often said ourselves, repent or you will perish, Luke 13, 3, and again at verse 5. So it must be a faith that leads us to repent. And yes, we are called upon to confess with our lips that Jesus is the Christ, Romans 10, verse 10. And also Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before the Father in heaven. And yes, baptism is the culminating act of our obedient faith. As we say each time we conclude a lesson here from this pulpit, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Mark 16, 16, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And once we have acted upon our faith by repenting, confessing, and being baptized, we must then having been added to that beautiful body, the church, remain faithful even unto death in order to receive the crown of life. And that faithfulness involves attending worship, Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the custom of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Paul, if Paul be the writer of Hebrews, but the Hebrews writer nonetheless writes that. And it also involves living righteously and praying regularly for the forgiveness of our own sins. Walking in the light as he is in the light, we do fall short at times, but the blood of Jesus continues to cleanse as we continue to walk and as we continue to confess our sins before the Father in heaven. And there's the beauty of being a believer, a continual believer, that joy, that peace, that reassurance that we can know that we know him, 1 John 2, 3, if we keep his commandments. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, John says specifically, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. 
And all of this is to be motivated by a love that increases every day that we live as Christians. Love for God, love for Christ, love for one another. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And our worship, obviously, is a part of the keeping of those commandments. We're not left free to worship any way and every way that we choose, although one would think that that certainly must be in the Bible because that's what so many people are doing these days, whatever they please. But John 4.24, Jesus reminded the woman at the well, and thus us for all time, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, spirit would get the matter of attitude and feeling good about what we're doing, but truth confines us to what is revealed in Scripture for us to do in worship. And oh, how many times have we talked about those things here? But it never hurts to remind ourselves as we draw near to another end of a calendar year. Let us not lose sight of how important it is that while some things end and new things begin, there's nothing new here that is to begin in terms of our worship to God. It'll be the same until the Lord comes again. Five acts of worship that constitute worshiping in truth, and that is partaking of the Lord's Supper on the first day of every week, Acts 20 and verse 7, singing without the accompaniment of mechanical instruments because the only command in the New Testament is for us to sing and make melody with our instrument. What is it? The instrument is the heart. Sing and make melody with your heart to the Lord. Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19. Make that abundantly clear. Prayer is that act of worship in which we are to engage regularly, as is giving of our means on the first day of every week, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. And yes, preaching and teaching from this book as a part of our worship, Acts 20 and verse 7, as Paul preached until midnight there, in Acts 20 and verse 7, as the disciples, the Christians, had come together for worship. Those are the five acts, no more, no less, in which we are to engage with hearts filled to overflowing with gratitude and love for God, if indeed we are to be a part, a pleasing part, of the only church for which Christ is coming to take home to the Father. Not a denomination among denominations, but the predenominational body of believers that Jesus shed his blood to save. Are you a part of that body? Important, yes. Very important. Immediate, it's here. Indestructible, it'll be here forevermore. Indivisible, there's only one, and it is identifiable, thanks be to God, so that we can know that we're a part of that body. One cannot deny, if one is honest with oneself, that God has joined himself to the church through his Son. Remember Ephesians 5.23, For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. The body is the church, as seen from the earlier reference in Ephesians 1.22 and 23. He put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
And so it is important, it is immediate, it is indestructible, indivisible, and identifiable, and really, because of all of that, we can actually say it is, it is indispensable. It's indispensable. What God has joined, let not man separate. Now, you can't join that church this morning, but God can add you to it if you'll believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, act upon that belief by repenting of sins, turning away from them, confessing sweetly the name of Christ, and being buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. You'll rise to walk in newness of life, having been added to the body about which we've been speaking this morning, the body for which Christ will one day come to take home to the Father. And if you've been a part of that body and know that you have, but you know that you're not a faithful part of it now because of your life and turning away from the truth in a way that has brought reproach upon this blood-bought institution, the church of our Lord and Savior, come home to her and to him who died to establish her. And repent as we stand to sing to encourage you.